A good Thursday morning to you on this July 22nd. Ryan Jesperson here with you. You're tuned in to Real Talk, produced editorially by Sarah Hoyles and technically by Samuel Brooks, and of course presented by our title sponsors at Bitcoin Well. If you missed it yesterday, make sure you check out CEO and founder Adam O'Brien's appearance. Alongside, by the way, Jake Kubiski, founding CEO of Kubi Energy, the two of them talking about sustainability around crypto and a whole bunch of other things, including billionaires in the race to space. You can find that interview with Adam. Of course, the highlights on my Twitter and the Real Talk RJ official Twitter account. We encourage you to follow that. And then, of course, if you subscribe to our podcast to YouTube. And a reminder, if you want to learn more about crypto, you want to talk to a real life human being about what's going on, you can find Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Coming up in about 10 minutes time or so. Uh, we'll speak with a retired major out of the Canadian Armed Forces, Quentin Innes, along with Dr. Sean Maloney at Royal Military College. Did you know that there's a movement to extract uh, Afghanis who supported Canadian uh, and other international troops in Afghanistan over the years to get them out of there? Uh, because, quite frankly, in, in layperson's terms, they're in trouble. They're in trouble because the Taliban is is far from eradicated uh, the influence the power far from eliminated and these uh, Afghans their families in real trouble right now we're going to find out what uh, these two men major retired Quentin Innes and Dr. Sean Maloney want the Canadian government to do that's a story that should be on our radar plus looking forward to this in about 45 minutes time tuberculosis tb is it on your radar at all uh, maybe a little bit since people have been talking uh, over the past month or so canadians have have been wrestling with and, and trying to learn more about our history involving residential schools uh, a a a massive number of those tragic deaths these young children these can you call them students people don't even want to call these places schools anymore but a lot of these deaths attributed to tuberculosis as a matter of fact, in some circumstances, almost some of these deaths almost dismissed or explained or written off as tuberculosis, as if that's an adequate explanation, not a problem that many of these healthy, young indigenous kids were not separated from kids that were sick, that this disease spread like wildfire through these locations. We're going to talk to a, a TB, a tuberculosis researcher, Dr. Courtney Heffernan and Tina Campbell. Tina's a registered nurse. Uh, happens to be indigenous and and by the way she's a tuberculosis survivor we'll get her story the two of them will join us in about 45 minutes time we're going to talk about the history of this why it's important to talk about it and 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 why it's relevant now or maybe how it's relevant now i'm expecting a very good conversation courtesy of prairie catering later on today we'll have an opportunity for somebody to eat their words looking forward to that and we intend to get into the results of our most recent question of the week presented by our official research and strategy partners at y station we asked you where you're at with regards to emerging from covid 
I feel like I should still clarify, and I'm happy to do it every single time. The position of the show is not that COVID is done, that we are finished, that we have no problems, and we're only looking in the rearview mirror. But the fact of the matter is jurisdictions are opening again. Many people are starting to feel some sense of normalcy again. If you're looking around you, you're probably noticing that not everybody's wearing a mask everywhere anymore. And some of you are still wrestling with that. Some of you are ready to blow it wide open. Some of you care whether or not people around you are vaccinated and some of you don't. We'll get into the results. And we certainly appreciate the hundreds of people that answered that question of the week. You can do it every single week right up via the top of the page at RyanJesperson.com. We're also keeping an eye uh, on our home province of Alberta right now, Alberta's justice minister uh, just yesterday on the 21st of July in the morning, releasing a letter uh, from Alberta justice and solicitor general, a letter to the federal ministers, essentially asking for them to green light Canadian citizens, Albertans in this case, carrying pepper spray. That's right. The Honorable Casey Maddu, Alberta's justice minister, uh, writing to the Honorable David Lametti, the federal minister of justice, the attorney general of Canada, quote, as your government has the authority to amend the criminal code, I suggest consideration be given to allowing individuals, including vulnerable persons, to carry pepper spray for self-defense, writes the justice minister, as you're aware Pepper spray is currently a prohibited weapon. It is sadly ironic that a vulnerable person carrying pepper spray for self-defense could quite possibly receive a longer sentence than her attacker. Alberta, like other provinces, has also seen an increase of drug-fueled attacks. Pepper spray would again be helpful in allowing personal defense when absolutely needed. Uh, Real Talkers, I'm curious for your take on this. If you're listening to this later in the day or, or days later, we'd love to hit you up or have you hit us up on our hashtag Real Talk RJ. Let us know what you think. I would imagine maybe this could be interesting fodder uh, for trash talk tomorrow. Maybe we'll get an email to talk at RyanJesperson.com on, on how people are feeling about this. When when I'm curious to know how, how, how things are landing, how initiatives are landing when it comes to Alberta politics, we take a look at the Alberta legislature hashtag. And that's where Deirdre Mitchell McLean, uh, you've heard her a political commentator on this show before, says, you know, the good guys with pepper spray relieving bigots, white supremacists, government law enforcement of accountability. By forcing the citizenry to protect themselves. Great job, UCP, says Deirdre Mitchell McLean. Phillips says, I did not have pepper spray fights on my best summer ever bingo card. The UCP director of sandwiches. Uh, it's one of my uh, the Twitter accounts that always jumps out the director of sandwiches. Now, that's a portfolio I think that I would be very good at. With that Friesen Brothers provolone sandwich, say, the turkey provolone sandwich yesterday. How thick that bread was. <laughs> right? Says, you know, it would be more effective line of defense than pepper spray. Maybe if we armed everybody with Axe body spray, which is an interesting and creative idea. Uh, Pactel, an MD, Dr. Emil Pactel, uh, chiming in on this, says nothing says I'm a competent justice minister that cares for people like begging the federal government to just give everybody pepper spray, you know, as opposed to actually using those powers to put a stop to offenders. Uh, Lisa says, I think the pepper spray thing is the government testing the temperature to eventually try to introduce gun laws more like the United States. Uh, of course, this is not a provincial regulation, but still says they know their base would love it, but they need to get more people on board. They're trying to empower the people, says Lisa. This is just my thoughts on it. The breakdown, I encourage you to follow them. They do a great podcast, says, plus, if we legalize pepper spray for personal use, it'll be that much easier for attackers to carry it without setting off any alarms or breaking any laws. What could possibly go wrong? 
a former MLA out of Calgary, Craig Coulihan, says in the wake of mass pepper spray violence, Alberta Justice Minister Casey Maddow calls on the federal government to allow all Albertans to open carry Ginsu knives. If interested in a Ginsu purchase, please contact the minister's office. Maybe there'd be a promo code there. And Crack Max, a great account out of Calgary, Alberta, says grammar mistakes aside, criticizing the letter. This seems like a bad idea. They say it may be better to address the root causes of hate based crimes uh, rather than allowing everybody to arm themselves with pepper spray to deal with perceived threats. And if you don't follow uh, Barney Penofsky or Barney Penofsky's best intentions on Twitter, uh, tweets at my name's not Gordy. You see how this type of thing can translate into advertising one way or another for a province like Alberta, jurisdiction like Alberta. Look at this. So I'm all packed for my trip to Alberta. I've got my I love oil and gas hoodie, truck nuts for my rental car, my best summer ever hat, my large bottle of Jameson's and pepper spray. So that's what the country's talking about right now when it comes to Alberta. And I'm curious to know how my colleagues here in studio feel about this. Sarah Hoyles, I was reading your body language as best I could well I read the tweets and and, and I just I call me, I'm, I'm picking up on the on the it seems to me like maybe you don't think this is the best idea to have everybody carrying pepper spray am I right you are correct I also believe that this is a distraction so you know this is ludicrous so what is he trying to deflect from so ah. a1 distraction and two, I agree. It's just it's a it's a whittling away. So if we can, you know, test balloon, stick it up in the air. What's what's the temperature on pepper spray? And then let's move right along to guns. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, the whole gun thing wouldn't be a provincial jurisdiction, but it, that that doesn't necessarily matter. Um, that's never really mattered to maybe any governments unless they're trying to deflect. If a government wants to deflect on something, they'll say, hey, hey, hang on a second. That's federal jurisdiction or vice versa. Right. If the prime minister doesn't want to comment on something to do with education or health, he can find ways to say, I'm sorry, that's a provincial jurisdiction. And we know the provinces and territories get really sensitive about that stuff. Right. They, they don't want the federal government speaking on their behalf. But in this situation, uh, Alberta would not be able to introduce the so-called open carry legislation or something like that. But but you wonder if this is more just about the messaging for them to be able to see, say, look, what we did over the last year, including. I even thought it was interesting. He said, you know, imagine if someone carrying pepper spray were able to were able to combat her attacker. Now, I don't know. Statistically, we would have people working in violence prevention probably acknowledge that women would be more statistically prone to being targets of the type of violence we're talking about. But it was an interesting use of that of that pronoun. Um, I wonder if this is more just kind of blowing those whistles, saying to folks, hey, listen, here's the type of thing we want to open up more freedoms for you. Sam, if this was given the green light, if the honorable minister, uh, David Lametti, federally speaking, said, you know what, this is a fantastic idea out of Alberta. And uh, maybe even the government of Alberta is going to mass purchase these so we can get them at a bulk rate. Would you have, besides your BlackBerry clipped onto your belt, would you have a Would you have a canister of pepper spray if you were given the no. green light? <laughs> it just, I'm like, oh my God. First of all, I'm, I'm a straight white man. There's no target on my back. I'm just going to point that out right now. Second of all, this is... Huh, Hang on, though. There's pretty, a lot of straight white men that are carrying AK-47s in the southern United States and in the why? state of Oregon. Yeah, because they like them. They because can. they feel because their penises are small. That's well, why. Well, they feel more safe, right? And they have the no, right to do it. No, because they have small it. penises. Yeah, okay. 
The other that, thing I, I want, on it? well, no, actually, my other take on it was something that was buried in the words. There, there was, there was the, it was talking a little bit about the hate stuff, and then he also says, and lots of drug fueled attacks. Yeah, if that wasn't a giant attacks. dog whistle, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's really significant. So I'm, I'm curious to know where you'll land on this, real talkers. We'll be keeping an eye on the live chat here. Uh, you know, I, I know that I, I suspect I know where people are going to land on this. You know, Tanya's wondering if everybody got their pepper spray ready for today's show. It seems to me that based on the live chat, a lot of people want to talk about the Kraken, the Seattle Kraken picking his team yesterday. Everybody knows what's happening who, now. Who are the Kraken? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't worry. Some NBA content's coming up a little later on <laughs> in the show, Sarah. Um, you're going to have to help me. I, I know that the guy's like he's the next LeBron. But I'm still brutal at pronouncing the name. Oh, like are you talking Giannis. about Giannis? Well, just, I'm just calling him Giannis. He's like everyone. It's I'm not comparing the careers and the legacies. The freak, the, the, the Greek freak. Yeah, but it's like Pele or or, or even Wayne, uh, Michael. You can just use the first names: LeBron, Giannis. Everybody knows who we're talking about. The Milwaukee Bucks, your 2021 NBA champions. Unbelievable mm-hmm. run uh, by this guy who is just. It, it, it's it's not always the hugest compliment to be referred to as a freak but in this guy's no. case it absolutely fits he's a beast a seven footer who can run and jump and shoot and dunk and block and defend and his I mean, foul shots leave a, i mean in the sure in the in the final like last game game six he annihilated from the foul line but 50 points it was incredible but not necessarily the best foul shooter. It's, that's kind of like saying when you drive around in your Ferrari, you, you, you sometimes your knees get a little sore because there's not enough leg room. <laughs> it's like there's always going to be something, right? There's always going to be something. Uh, you know, some random guy says we might as well just give everybody guns if we're talking about uh, pepper spray. Karen says when I read the justice minister's comments, I thought, obey. Oh, boy. Welcome to Alberta, Bama. Uh, you know, Fatima says this is so embarrassing and this government's dangerous. Tanya says, yeah, because accidents will never happen, right? And dealing with racism is just too hard. Trisha says, Axe body spray would make everybody run away. I guess that's kind of the point. Instead of Ralph Bucks, says an audience member, we'll all be given Kenny spray. And another says, this is Deborah. No consultation by the government to police regarding pepper spray results in another FUBAR. You can look up FUBAR if you like. Our young listeners, don't worry about it. People are talking about bear spray. Kim says there's got to be probably a UCP donor who produces pepper spray. Uh, Linda Ray says we need to start auditing who owns pepper production companies in Alberta. Chris just says this is so embarrassing. Lisa wonders if this is a distraction from the logging contracts. Carrie says I do have pepper spray. I gave it to my daughter when she went hiking in the mountains. Absolutely. I mean, you know, don't 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 count on pepper spray, by the way. I mean, I'm just saying talk talk to the experts when you're arming yourself for the backcountry with regards to bears. You're going to want the full blown bear spray. Uh, but, but I mean, bear spray. I know people that have carried bear spray in their vehicles before. To be clear, it's illegal to do that. But people feel like it's a it's it's a less violent way to arm yourself. Now, keep in mind, you ever get pulled over, you have bear spray in your glove box. You're, you're going to be in deep doo doo on that one. Right. I, cho- I, I choked up on that. I think that's what happens when I try to go PG <laughs> as opposed to NC-17. Get stuck I, in your throat. I just it just I just don't feel good about it. Do you do? Carrie goes on to say, so I gave it to her to travel in the backcountry, but I sure wouldn't give it to her walking down Jasper Avenue. Erica says this pepper spray idea is just stupid. 
She says, but, says Erica, to say that it's step one of a larger plan to arm all Albertans with guns is a Grand Canyon leap. I like that phrasing, Grand Canyon leap. And there's a few FUBAR fans in the house. Trisha encouraging us to turn down the suck. That's one of my favorite quotes of all time. Fucking Tron, man. Fucking Tron. All right. Send us your thoughts. The Real Talk RJ hashtag is the one that we'll be keeping an eye on. Want to remind you this morning that the team at Kubi Energy is giving away a full solar system. I need to pause between those two words in case there's any confusion. No planets, stars, or asteroids will be awarded but somebody is going to get hooked up to go as close to net zero as humanly possible there is no catch you will incur no cost all you have to do to qualify for this is tell us your solar story why do you or somebody that you're speaking on behalf of you can nominate anybody you like why do you or somebody else deserve need that net zero solar solution the contest is open right up until midnight on Sunday night. That's Mountain Time, 11.59.59 Mountain Time Sunday. And then on Monday morning, during Positive Reflections, we're going to tell you how you, Real Talkers, are going to choose who's going to win this solar system. We're valuing it at about $15,000. might be twelve. it might be twenty. It depends on the size of the building that we're outfitting. Kubi Energy is doing amazing work across Western Canada when it comes to solar. You can learn more about our content contest the details at kubienergy.ca slash real talk and you can send your solar story in to talk at ryanjesperson.com well did you know that there's an effort right now uh, to lobby the federal government to take action on afghan citizens who are trapped right now they're in trouble their lives and the lives of their families are in danger because they helped troops including canadians Try to secure that country. We're grateful to have uh, retired Major Quentin Innes, the Canadian Armed Forces, and Dr. Sean Maloney, a professor at Royal Military College, joining us this morning. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Both of you have been on the ground in Afghanistan. Both of you are speaking from a perspective of, of firsthand knowledge. Uh, Major, why don't, why don't we begin with you? Can, can you give us a sense of, of who we're talking about here and why this is so important right now? Yeah, Um can you hear me? I sure Sean? can. You bet. Good. Okay. So I just want to do a sound check there. So these people are, are Afghans. They're guys who were born in Afghanistan, grew up in Afghanistan. Some of them uh, were refugees in their earlier lives. Uh, and they're people who are Afghan patriots. They are people who uh, stepped up and started to work for Canadians and for other coalition troops. Uh, there's one individual I just finished talking to five minutes ago, worked with a buddy of mine in 2002, worked with me in 2006. Uh, again in 2009, and then he moved off um, into the uh, Civil Aviation Authority, and he's now the security director there. So these are these are Afghan patriots, and these are people who have done good work for us, and they are people who have uh, saved Canadians' lives, and in, in many cases saved the lives of myself and people like Sean. Uh Dr. Maloney, you were uh, you are a professor of history at the Royal Military College in Canada. You served as the historical advisor to the chief of the land staff during the war in Afghanistan. How significant was the contribution of the service of the uh, of these Afghani citizens? Oh, absolutely huge. There we there. We could not have conducted operations in that environment without them. Hmm. We were true partners with them. 
So every time we had, to, we had, it's not like a, a second world war type war. It's this counterinsurgency where one has to get into the deal with the population in the villages and the towns. So the only way we can communicate literally was through the interpreters. And then the locally employed employees that provided the support uh, at several deployed forward operating bases, we couldn't have done that without them either. So that was a true partnership. We were absolutely integrated with them. We were dependent upon each other and they put their trust in us as much as we put their trust in them. Hmm. So, Major, there, I, I guarantee you there's going to be Canadians that are hearing this interview that are going, wait a second, what? The Taliban? Uh, Afghan citizens are in danger? What? We haven't been hearing a lot about this. Is, is this a flare up? Can, can you give us a sense of what's happening right now? Yeah, what's happening right now is the Taliban have launched an offensive. So wind back the clock about 14 years, 2006, 15 years. In 2006, we rolled into Kandahar province. Uh, we deployed a, a provincial reconstruction team downtown to work with the government. And we deployed a battle group, a battalion-sized organization, and close to 1,000 soldiers. Uh, we called that Task Force Orion. Task Force Orion's job was to provide security for the PRT, uh, for the guys that were assisting the government, because we thought at that time that the Taliban were done and there was no insurgency uh, and that we would be able to get on with reconstruction. That didn't happen. The Taliban had a plan to come back and seize Kandahar City. And if you look at the geography of, of uh, Afghanistan, you'll see that Afghanistan is basically connected by one major highway. We call it the Ring Road. It goes all the way around and it connects Kabul with Kandahar, with Herat, with Mazari Sharif, and then back to Kabul. If you take Kandahar, you basically cut the, the country in half. So the Taliban saw a window of opportunity with the Americans pulling out of the south, Canadians and NATO coming in and they thought they would roll in and take Kandahar. Task Force Orion stopped that. What the Taliban have done this year is they basically dusted off that plan, and this time it succeeded because they looked at the window of opportunity caused by the Americans pulling out, uh, decided that the Afghan National Security Forces wouldn't be able to do the job, and so they've launched an offensive again. And they did it almost exactly the same way. They came in from the west, circled around to the north, circled around to the south, and basically they've surrounded Kandahar City on three sides, and they put a block into the uh, highway between Kandahar and Kabul. So we had an interpreter who moved by road from uh, Kandahar City to Kabul about three, four days ago. He went through five checkpoints run by the Taliban. So the, the Taliban have actually managed to take control of the rural districts around the city, and the city itself is still relatively untouched. There's the, the western part of it is under Taliban control, but the, the bulk of the city is still under government control. Uh, but citizens in the city are worried. They're scared because the Taliban are now starting to go house to house with lists of people, uh, take people and execute them. So we know for sure that two of the sons of the head of the Kandahar Provincial Shura uh, were executed and returned to the family. So this is like... Uh, an armed gang coming into Edmonton, uh, moving into Leduc, moving into St. Albert, seizing the city, and then starting to go into the city, uh, catch people, and execute them. So, Sean, the, the yeah. argument here, obviously, the, 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 the motive here, like what, the onus, I guess what we're going to call it, I guess, is, is on Canada and what other international partners to do something about it, and now? I mean, what's the lobby? Can you describe it for us? Well, I'm more involved in the uh, in the history of it, but there is a, a large number of people that have got together. Um, most of us have been in Afghanistan for protracted periods. We know the people, we know the environment, and we know what the uh, Taliban is capable of doing to them. 
Uh, a number of groups have popped up. Uh, and one of them had been working for several months by this po- at this point to collect names. This has accelerated very rapidly because of the offensive. This offensive uh, popped up almost out of nowhere, and it has put extreme pressure on the need to identify and evacuate the people that work with us because they're definitely being targeted. Um, the, I would say that the, the, the group number of people who are interested in this particular topic are growing across the country. We feel we have an obligation to them. We believe that time is of the essence. And the sooner we can get moving on this, the better. Because I'll give you an example of what one of my uh, former interpreters told me. Um, I just found out, for example, on the border with uh, Pakistan, there's a community called Spinbaldak, very important place. It's been overrun by the Taliban the past week. I have a, a friend of mine that knows people there. They separated out about 600 people, and then they executed 300 of those 600 Jeez. and returned the bodies to their families. Okay. Now, here's the really chilling part about this. Um, the, the Taliban are, are, are using biometrics. By that, we mean fingerprints. They have fingerprint scanners, they have laptops, and they know exactly who our people are. And they're trying to find those people, and they're trying to kill them. So, Major, what in your mind, what does an appropriate response from Canada look like? Well, to me, it looks like the reinvigoration of the program that we had before. So from 2007 to 2011, we had a program where Afghans who worked for us uh, as interpreters, as employees, could come over to Canada under a uh, fast-track refugee program. We need to expand that program to include Afghans who didn't work directly for us. So we need to include contractors and subcontractors because some of those people are actually in more danger because they're more identifiable. So we need to get uh, forces into Kabul. We need to set up a station where people can report into. We need to bring airframes into there, get the people out of there, bring them to a safe place, either to Canada, to a third location. And then we can start sorting through their refugee applications. So if it turns out that the person that's applied, and there may be one or two, doesn't fully qualify, then we can send them back. But the reality is we time is running out. We don't have a lot of time to go through a bureaucratic process. This needs to be clean, efficient, and fast. How would you describe the response of the federal government to this right now up until this point? So far, we've had good traction. So I've got a, a message back from the prime minister's office saying that the file has been passed to global affairs. Um, I have The military has set up a uh, collection point where we can put files together. Uh, those files go into one email address. That email address sends them over to the uh, immigration department. So, so far, I've had one file get through that process. I'll be submitting two more today. So, we'll see what happens. The, we know that there's planning going on because we still talk to people in the military. We know there's planning going on at the military level, and we anticipate that the government's going to make an, an announcement shortly. So, we think we're moving the mountain. But you can only move a mountain if you keep the pressure up. Yeah, good point. Uh, Dr. Maloney, what, I mean, what does this mean? The, the bigger implications, are, are, we, are we talking about essentially, you know, from a layperson's perspective, Canada ramping up involvement in Afghanistan again? I mean, how significant is that? And how do you think that lands across the country? Well, the significance of this is, and I'm going to step back and take a larger view of it. We have a value system in this country. We went to assist a post-apocalyptic environment in Afghanistan as they attempted to rebuild. We attempted to shield that 
against outside influences that try to disrupt it for a variety of reasons that has is in the process of collapse. So we've got a what we are on a, we're in a, a values and a moral quandary right now. We do we just abandon and walk away from this? And to what level do we intervene? And to what level do we uh, attempt to protect the people that work with us? The larger problems in that region, which involve Iran, which involve Pakistan, which involve China, we can't necessarily influence that. That is, uh, we have other allies that are involved in that. That is a larger problem. But our values are connected to the people that we have there. Those people were edu are educated, the younger. They were there to help bring up a country that had a very low literacy rate and, and, and attempt, in an attempt to rebuild it. And the Taliban and their sponsors are trying to kill those people so that that country remains in a medieval state. We have a whole bunch of people that we worked with to bring it up, not just the interpreters, not just the locally employed uh, personnel, but entrepreneurs, media people, the whole bit. We had successfully assisted them in moving their, the status up, and that is under constant attack. And so uh, what are we going to do about that as Canada? At the very least, we can help preserve a nucleus of people. How many people are we talking about, Doc? That's a good question. For every every interpreter or LE, you're going to have at least probably seven to ten family members. Mm -hmm. I would estimate it probably two to three thousand people, maybe a little more than that. But when we look at other operations where we've lifted out, you know, ten and twenty five thousand people, uh, it's kind of mysterious to me that we can't do this. So, uh, in my view. And the big question also on top of this, I should have added this before, Ryan, if we don't do this, nobody's going to trust us again. Yeah. Our rhetoric will be absolutely hollow, and that has long-term effects. So, for example, there's a lot of people using Vietnam analogies about this. They're putting up pictures of Saigon in 75, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That has resonated in the United States over nearly half a century. Okay? And it's called into question uh, American values. So we're in a similar situation. If we don't do this, we're going to be paying for this for a very long time and a long time that will go past the election horizon. Okay. So in my view, and I'm thinking again, long-term and having looked at the past, we have to do something because we're going to pay the price for this later. Well, and, and you're essentially saying this professor, but I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that not only paying for this or outside election cycles, but this in a sense endangers Canadian servicemen and women around the world. Right. I mean, if you start chipping away at the reputation and the trust yes. of what that Canadian flag on the shoulder means, there's a way bigger problem that goes outside of Afghanistan's borders. Fine, you're, ba you're bang on because we, this idea that we're never going to go overseas again and we're never going to get involved in everything, we're going to sit here on this North American island and let everybody else do the work, that's not going to hold. Some people may want that, but that's not going to hold. We are going to be engaged somewhere in some fashion repeatedly or, or in a protracted period um, in the future. And if somebody pops up and says, hey, I don't want to work for you guys because you didn't take care of those guys before, we're going to have a real problem. And in, 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 in the type of warfare we're getting involved in, you have to work with and you have to know the people. And that's that's very straightforward. Major, I've, I've got a great question here from Barb, uh, who's watching us live on YouTube. Wonders, does the fact that the Taliban is, is once again uh, taking over military operations in Afghanistan, is that a sign that our time there was a failure? How would you evaluate it? Absolutely not. We gave the Afghans 15 years, even from 2006 to 2001, we gave them a 15 year period 
where they could have worked some of this out. Now, I mean, let's be realistic about this. The major issue in Afghanistan is not necessarily the Afghans themselves or anything ISAF did or anything that the coalition did. The major issue is that you have an insurgency that has a safe harbor. They have a safe harbor across the, the border to the south and the west or the east in Pakistan. And unless we are willing to deal with that Pakistani problem, we're not going to have a long-term solution in Afghanistan. The, the second issue that we have in Afghanistan is the capability uh, of the Afghan government. And we spent a tremendous amount of time trying to mentor that Afghan government. So yeah, literacy rates are up. Uh, education is up. The majority of Afghans are getting paid uh, through banking system, the banking system. So corruption is down. People can't uh, fleece their employees like they used to. So we've done a tremendous amount of work and we built an Afghan security force of 300,000 people. That Afghan security force should be able to handle 50,000 Taliban. So the reason they're not able to handle the Taliban is because of the influence of malign actors, frankly, from outside. Exactly. Uh, and I'm, yes. I'm, looking, I'm, I'm thinking Pakistan and uh, it's increasingly looking like China. Um, so the international community needs to put pressure on Pakistan uh, to, uh, to pull the chain on the Taliban. Is that, uh, doctor, I'd love for you to, I know you want to jump in here. Please do. Well, I'm, we're, talk, we're talking to our people on the ground and they're telling me and us that people are speaking in Urdu, not Pashto. People genetically don't appear like they're from Afghanistan, but they're from somewhere else. And there is no way that in the past five months they've, that they've been able to do this on their own. For ex- I'll give you an example. I was looking at this. I've written a three-volume history of the war. It hasn't come out yet. I went back in February to revise the epilogue, okay? So I looked back in the past seven years to see what's going on, called a few people. I said, how are things in Kandahar? This is in December, January. Oh, it's like when you're here in 2005. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's better than it was in 2009. And so I started looking into what had happened to the Taliban since uh, we had departed. And they had, they had undergone their own little civil war after Mullah Omar died. They start killing each other. The ISIS equivalent pops up and they start killing each other. And so the, the insurgency is sort of fragmented, right? Well, in the past five or six months, somebody has welded together all the broken pieces. They've enabled it. With, with computers and, and biometric software, and they, they know how to scavenge equipment as they go and, and recruit people to the cause. We call that focalism for a technical term. And, but there had to be a plan. And Q is absolutely right. We're, what, about a couple of weeks ago, three of us are watching the North start to collapse, and we're sitting here going, what's going on in the South? So we start calling our people up. And the first person I get hold of is, I got to get the hell out of Police District 7. I said, why? He says, the, I said, he says, the Taliban's coming in. So we get them to tell us how it's going. We plot it out. And this is exactly the same plan that our opponents had used in 2006. It's just we're not there. It's the same thing. So somebody had to give them that. They had to enable them. They had to develop a coalition to bring, out, bring all those pieces back together again. There's no way, absolutely no way this happened internally. There's definitely as Q says, malign, uh, malign actor that is doing this. What? pressure needs to be put on that. Now, obviously, I, I can understand sort of the theories around destabilization or, or whatever, but but I, I got to be honest, I, I have no knowledge of the nuance here, which I think is probably really important. But but get, can either of you help us understand what motivation Pakistan, or, or I'm very intrigued by the, the, the assumption or the allegation that China could be behind a lot of this, whether it's funding or otherwise, what would motivate a nation like Pakistan or China 
to to empower the Taliban in Afghanistan. John, do you want to take it or shall I go? You take part of it. I'll take the other part. Okay, so I'll 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 lead off. It's it's a long story, and and I'll try and keep it simple. But essentially, Pakistani foreign policy is is driven by fear of India. Pakistan was created in 47, 48, and they were created to not be India. They fought three wars with the Indians, um, and they've lost each one. So the Pakistani foreign policy towards Afghanistan is based on the idea of what they call strategic depth. They consider Afghanistan to be their strategic depth. What complicates this is that ethnically, a large chunk of Western Pakistan is populated by people from the Pashto tribe who have family right across the border. So that border for Afghans in the minds of Afghans doesn't really exist. Mm. They move back and forth quite freely. And the Pakistanis have been fighting an insurgency in the, the western part of Pakistan for a long time, either against the Baluch, which started in 47, 48, or against the Pashtuns. So even the year that we were in Afghanistan, the first year we were fighting in Afghanistan, serious fighting in 06, the Pakistani army lost 8,000 sol- or sorry, 800 soldiers um, fighting in the tribal areas. So the Pakistanis have an ongoing problem. For whatever reason, they've decided to support the Taliban uh, because they want Afghanistan to be aligned with them and not with the Indians. And they believe that a Taliban government will align more closely with Pakistan than it will with India. So that that's the basics of it. That's the reason why Pakistan is willing to support the Taliban. Uh, the second order effect is that, of course, if the Taliban do take over in Afghanistan, the Pakistanis may have created a problem for themselves because they may have created a bigger internal terrorist problem they're then going to have to deal with. Exactly. Doc, do you want to pick up from there? Here's the other part of that. So we're looking at China. China funds a port called Gwadar, which is in southern Pakistan. To connect that port to China, it has to go through the western part of Pakistan. So there are a lot of unruly people in that part of Pakistan that are better directed somewhere else, i.e. Afghanistan. That's one argument that's been made. But this is one of the most important ones, and it goes back to the one I was speaking about before. And to discredit, let's just say, let's start with the Americans and then the Afghan project. To discredit Western value systems, um, it is best for our opponents to generate a situation where people are clambering aboard helicopters from roofs in Kabul, okay? That will be used in what we call information operations or influence operations for decades, and it'll be linked to Vietnam forever, okay? So there are people uh, from other adversary states that would like to see that sort of thing happen so it can, it can be recorded and employed later. And that will have a tremendous, as I pointed out, multi-decade effect, proving that the Afghan project failed because Canada and the U.S. and the Afghans are failures, Okay, is a real is a is a compelling argument to people that want wanted to go there, but we're in a situation where did Afghanistan fall or was it pushed? And in this case, when we're looking at our current situation over the past say five months, it's being pushed because things were not like this a year ago. There was don't get me wrong, there was an insurgency, there were problems and people getting killed, but this is on an order of magnitude different. So. The equivalent would be 2006, say, to 2003, okay? So that's how I would frame it. You do have malign actors who would love to see this as a, as a larger humiliation for our value system, not just a national country, a national, nation or country, 
but our entire value system, which is one of the reasons why we were there in the first place. Exactly. So you have okay. these, you know, so so if this is tied to China or if the federal government uh, believes that China is an actor here, I mean, we have, you know, one example, the Michaels, Kovring and Spavor, remain detained in China. Uh, Canada finds itself in a tough spot in a number of circumstances. China has, has been able to flex its muscle and screw over Canadian agricultural producers. And we've seen example after example after example of how this government, and I think even the prime minister, has been attacked by his political opponents on home soil for failing to stand up to China. Now, a lot of people will probably smirk and suggest that if you believe that Canada can take a big, bold stance and b- start bullying China around that you don't quite understand how international relations work or who really holds the big stick. But do you think that inaction from Canada on this front could be a direct result of this perceived power imbalance or trying to preserve a relationship with the superpower that is China? That's a tough one. It's a a complicated issue. Um, I don't I think we have enough beefs with China already that we don't need to add Afghanistan to that pot. And I think that China's influence in Afghanistan right now is indirect. We know that the Chinese um, Belt and Rail Initiative is going to want to flow through Afghanistan at some point. And we know that uh, you had the map of Afghanistan up earlier. That little piece of Afghanistan that, that kicks off to the northeast that actually borders China. So what will happen is China is going to put a road in through that area, uh, take it through Kabul, down through Kandahar, across the uh, across to um, Helmand, and then down straight south to Gwadar. And that will give them a port right on the Arabian Sea, which means they don't have to go through uh, the Straits of Malacca around Singapore. So a, lo- a lot of this is based on Chinese geopolitics. And People need to understand that the the Chinese, to use their own terms, are a bit of a paper tiger. China has a huge demographic problem. Uh, They are going to grow old before they get rich, and that is going to be a problem for them. They have about 10 years, maybe 15 years, before their population starts to age out, and they will no longer be able to support the economic growth that's maintained the stability in China. The other problem China has is that when China opens up to the world, it tends to separate out. The internal parts of China remain poor. Uh, The seacoast gets rich. The other issue is that if you look at a map, uh, you look at Japan, Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines, basically what those islands do is they form a chain that blocks China off from access to the Pacific. This is why the Chinese are maneuvering in the South China Sea. So they're maneuvering in the South China Sea. They're building the little islands there where they can claim territory. They're pushing fishing fleets out. Those fishing fleets are protected by Chinese Coast Guard, which is a bit more militant than regular Coast Guards. Um, And the push into Afghanistan and into Central Asia is a similar push going west rather than going east. So they're pushing east and south into the Pacific, and they're pushing uh, west into Central Asia. And Afghanistan is part of that puzzle. Pakistanis have been aligned with the Chinese for a while. So this is just one more piece that they can fit into there. Sean? Oh, yeah, I would def- the only thing I'd add to that is the Uyghur situation in Western China uh, because they are desperately concerned, the Chinese, that there would be a radical Islamic movement uh, that they will have to confront on a massive scale, which will undermine the, uh, PRC, the Chinese project. So by forestalling that, doing deals, making relationships with organizations like the Taliban, 
um, that can play into their larger game of containing the Uyghurs. So, uh, and the other potential problems they've got in Central Asia. So when you put what Q said and what I've said together, they have a tremendous interest in having indirect involvement what's going on there's no doubt about it i gotta say conversations like this just blow my mind there is there is so much going on i am so grateful for the insight here i know this is a story that canadians need to be talking about gentlemen this is this is maybe going to be an unfair question to wrap but i'm curious for both of your insights maybe maybe dr maloney will start with you on on and i'm asking you to look into a a murky crystal ball here i'm sure but but with the trend you're seeing right now uh what does Afghanistan look like in five years? I'm an historian. I look backward. Sure. Projecting forward is a bit more difficult. I don't know. I, I'm very concerned that it's going to wind up descending into the uh, medievalism it was in the 1990s. Right. Okay? But there's going to be people there that aren't going to want to go along with that project. All right. And they're going to need assistance in some form. What, that for, what form that takes, who does it, I don't know. But there are people there that are just not going to tolerate this. There are going to be tribal groupings that are going to be grieved in various ways. And you could wind up, definitely wind up with a, uh, a situation similar to that in the early 1990s with different factions fighting it out. Uh, but in this case, it looks like uh, the Taliban is somewhat dominant for the time being. That it, will, it will not last. This is one of the reasons that they're killing off a generation of people. And that, okay, so that those young people cannot grow up to challenge them. That's what, that's why when you look at the whole picture here, they're, 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 they have the equivalent of a Nazi Einsatzgruppe going around taking people out so that they can't resist later on. They think intergenerationally, not three, four, five years. So if you kill the sons, and Q pointed this out, you kill the sons of the political leadership in Kandahar, they can't come back and get revenge because nobody believes in ghosts there, okay? Mm. So... You kill those people off and you kill the educated and you keep everybody uh, submissive to a, dis- a highly distorted form of Islam. Um, that's how you control the place. And we need to do everything we can, if we can, to support or prevent that from happening hmm. in one way or another. Major, five years from now? Uh, I always used to say that success in Afghanistan looks like no civil war. So my fear is that Afghanistan will descend into a civil war. And people have to understand that the uh, the damage that was done in Afghanistan in the 80s and 90s wasn't done during the fighting against the, the Russians. Southern Afghanistan was badly beat up, but northern Afghanistan was more or less intact. Most of the damage that was done to Kabul was done after the Russians left during the civil war. So what we what we don't want to see is a civil war. That's the worst case scenario. And I think if the Taliban are allowed to continue to do what they're doing, there will be a civil war because, as Sean says, there are people in Afghanistan outside of the government who are not going to just roll over when the Taliban comes in. Retired Major Quentin Innes served his country, Canadian Armed Forces, uh, spending much of his career in Afghanistan from 2006 to 2014. Dr. Sean Maloney, professor of history at the Royal Military College of Canada, also served in Afghanistan as historical advisor to the chief of the land staff. What a, what a, can I say what a fascinating experience that must have been, doctor? I can't even imagine. What, what an application of your study and your knowledge and, and your academic pursuits to then be there with dust on the boots. That, that must have been a, a remarkable experience. Absolutely. And with, uh, it, was, it was good working with Q and all the other people at the time, too. I mean, 
yeah, it was quite the, uh, I was there 11 times during that period to track wow. what we were doing. And uh, it, uh, it was not easy. I, uh, let me put it that way. Yeah. It was a constant threat to life and limb. Well, and this is, uh, first of all, I love that you call him Q. Uh, Quentin, what's your, what's your nickname for Sean? Uh, we used to call him Dr. Maloney. <laughs> so the, the Afghans are extremely, extremely um, education oriented, right? So they, uh, the average Afghan wants their kids to be educated. If you talk to an Afghan tribal elder and you say, you know, do you want your daughter to be a doctor? He will say yes. Yeah. And the Afghans, in the Afghan culture, the honorable professions are doctor, engineer, and teacher. Hmm. Interestingly enough, not lawyer. Um, so the, uh, I mean, we, you got to slip a lawyer joke in there. Everybody hates lawyers. A shot across uh, the bow, yeah. Even so, in Afghanistan. So the, uh, you know, the Afghans know what, what's valuable in their society, and they, and they very much value education. They very much value learning. These are not ignorant people. And so Dr. Maloney was the way we always referred to him because that is an honorific in Afghanistan. It means something. Amazing. I mean, the bond between you two is is palpable. Obviously, we talked about the bond. I mean, you're, you're, you're describing, especially Dr. Maloney, you're talking about conversations you're having with people uh, that served alongside you, that assisted you there. In many cases, I would imagine you would probably say that saved your lives or saved the lives of, of people around you. And those relationships yeah. uh, continue to today and into tomorrow um, really appreciate your perspective on this gentlemen thanks for making time for us today thank you very much ryan thank you for getting this out yeah you bet. thanks ryan really appreciate it you got it that's dr sean maloney royal military college and, and retired major quentin innes of the canadian armed forces i uh that's one of the interviews i'm gonna have to go back and watch again I mean, when they start describing what's going on with pakistan and china and the moon and i feel like you almost need to sort of like be looking at a map and plotting it out and going wow it's you know these sorts of things uh, what was that Tom Hanks movie where he was Da Vinci Code and he's kind of sorting it all out or Russell Crowe with a, a beautiful mind? Mm. It sort of seems like that's going on. But the insight that those two have, absolutely remarkable stuff. And, and I know that on the uh, on, on our live chat, this was resonating uh, with people as well. And uh, you can let me know how this lands with you. You know, Wally says there are like 50 international conflicts right now, at least four major civil wars. You know, why aren't we in Yemen? You know, because our allies are causing it. Why aren't we in Somalia? Why aren't we in Central Africa? Tomas references Charlie Wilson's war. Speaking of mm -hmm. Tom Hanks. Yeah. Brenda says, wow, is this ever eye opening? <laughs> and I love this from Deborah. We need sort of like a nail on the head prize or a nail on the head award or something like that. Deborah says, great, great segment. This is what happens when you book experts instead of politicians. You get real insight. It's the absolute truth. Deborah, I totally appreciate that comment. Bang on. You know, the team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food wants to remind you that in addition to quality raw food, their nutritional experts on staff are also able to recommend supplements. If you check out granddog.ca, check this out right now. I love this brand name, Four Leaf Rover. How good is that for dog supplements? <laughs> They've got their soil-based probiotics, natural digestive enzymes, that, that safe sea green-lipped muscle oil for dogs, joint and mobility support. What is what does Happy Days Dairy Raw Fermented Goat Milk have to do with your dog's health? Well, if you want to find out, you can get in touch with the team. You can contact them. They have their frequently asked questions right there on their website. And 
If you use the promo code REALTALK at granddog.ca, you're going to save 10% on your first order. They deliver to your door. A reminder to our Alberta audience members in Calgary, Edmonton, Central Alberta, maybe other communities. I don't know. If you have enough dogs, I'm sure they'd make the delivery. You never know. You can get in touch with the team at Grand Dog via their website, granddog.ca. Of course, that's also under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. We also want to remind you that Trash Talk is coming up tomorrow. If you have something you want to get off your chest, you can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you note Trash Talk in the subject line. It is proudly presented by the team at Local Waste Services. If you check them out online, you can see you can connect with them today for a bin. A shout out to our audience members in the beautiful province of Saskatchewan, Local Waste has a big presence in Regina now. Uh, you can find out how to partner with them on two fronts. If you're an entrepreneur, you'd love to broaden the scope. You see maybe there's an, an opportunity that exists in your community, or maybe you just want to work uh, with a company that's going to handle your garbage, a company that you can trust. Integrity is job number one with them. You can get in touch with their team by calling Mikel, Lauren, or Chris at 780-242-9746. And a big shout out to the team at Campers Village. This is prime time for getting out into the backcountry. You know that so many of our audience members are getting out there into the woods in the great outdoors whether it's paddling whether you're camping with the family just out of your car or your van or maybe you're hiking 40k into where you're not going to see anybody else if you need to get equipped there's no better place to go than the place that has been serving those that get out into the great outdoors for decades two stores in edmonton one in calgary and always open online at campers-village.com most orders online ship for free if they're over 49 bucks and again campers village you'll find them under the sponsors tab on our website we thank you in advance for showing them your business well as we have grappled as a nation as we have wrestled with this legacy with our history of residential schools of course an enormous and important amount of time has been spent discussing the number of children who died in care a big part of that, a big contributing factor was tuberculosis. And we're grateful that these two expert guests have made time for us this morning. Dr. Courtney Heffernan is manager of the TB, the Tuberculosis Program Evaluation and Research Unit at the University of Alberta, a PhD in medicine out of the University of Alberta. Tina Campbell is an RN, a registered nurse who's been working within public health in TB programs for more than a decade, spending much of her time in indigenous communities throughout Nunavut and northern Saskatchewan. To the two of you, thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, Dr. Heffernan, why don't we begin with you? Why is it so important right now that Canadians understand the role that tuberculosis played when it comes to the bigger conversation about residential schools? Yeah, um, and thanks so much for having us. I, I just wanted to, um, you know, create a moment of safety. These conversations are uh, very difficult and challenging, and it's a, a painful kind of moment in time. And there is a residential school survivor crisis line that people can reach out to if there's any um, 
harms solicited from um, hearing their conversation here today. Um, I can have the number here. You know what, Doctor? We actually have the number. And and, and let me read that out for everybody that's going to be listening on the podcast. This is uh, this is the crisis line uh, for the uh, the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. We've had uh, wonderful conversations, as a matter of fact, with them and with their organizers. And they provide an unbelievable resource uh, and, and tragically such an important resource right now. But that that crisis line, uh, which we've shown, and, and I, I'm so grateful that you've brought this up because it's so important that we do note this. You know, I, I sometimes find, can I say that I'm a little bit guilty from from a hot transition from one conversation right into another? And we do need to create that moment of pause. So here it is. The crisis line for the National Indian Residential Schools is one 866 925 4419 one 925 4419 All right. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, so, you know, uh, when this news just started coming out and, uh, you know, in drips and drops uh, over the past few weeks, um, I kind of saw this rhetoric happening in the media that, you know, TB was common at the time. TB is sort of, um, people jumped to that moment. People jumped to TB as a, a common disease and making it seem as though, you know, that meant that children who died in care because of TB, those deaths were inevitable. And uh, Tina and I are both members of the Stop TB Canada Network uh, Steering Committee. And we're a group of advocates who are, you know, uh, positioned with a mission to aim uh, end TB at home and abroad. And uh, we have a breadth of diverse expertise in TB research practice and lived experience. And we really wanted to tap into that to say, you know, the increase, increased risk of death for, from TB of children in residential schools, it's not an excuse. Um, it's not an excuse of the recoveries that are being made on the former sites of residential schools. Um, schools in Canada, it's an indictment. So the federal government hired a chief medical officer of health for the Department of Indian Affairs, Dr. Peter Bryce, 1904. He generated 10 years of contemporaneous reports on the health of Indigenous peoples, and those included reports on conditions in selected residential schools. He, at the time, you know, making those contemporaneous observations, he was appalled at the conditions. He made recommendations to limit the spread and severity of TB specifically, but they weren't enacted by anyone who could have, you know, made a difference. And, you know, in my mind, kind of more tragically, is that this is sort of the thin end of the wedge. Bryce was observing the early days of what would actually come to be an even worse crisis. So, tuberculosis as a disease of public health concern, it moves a lot more slowly than other diseases. It's got a period of infection and latency and then reactivation and then a transmission cycle. So it's kind of slow. And by the 1930s and 1940s, the TB mortality rate in First Nations in Canada, it reached an astronomical peak of 700 per 100 700 per 100,000. This is among the highest rates ever recorded in a human population. And during this same period of time, it was estimated that the mortality rate among children in residential schools from TB was 8,000 per 100,000. You know, it's just kind of 
unreal um, if you think about it. And this kind of horrific unfolding was what Bryce seemed to be shouting from the rooftops that the government of the day, and by extension, the churches running the schools, really had a duty to prevent. Would every TB death have been avoided? You know, no. Would the immense scope of the tragedy that happened later on have been mitigated? I think probably so. So we're talking, I mean, uh, Tina, first of all, can, can we establish that your experience, your understanding, even your interaction with TB, I mean, your experience is, is firsthand and multifaceted, isn't it? Yes. Um, yeah, thank you for, just want to mention, thank you for having, help having us today. Yeah. Um, before I say anything, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm taking this call from Treaty 6, uh, the traditional territory of the Cree and the homeland of the Métis people. Um, so my experience, I've been working within TB for 11 years now. Um, first chunk of it, I was done up in, in the territory, so in Nunavut. And up there they have um, rates four times, 400 times higher than the rest of Canada. Um, so I started as a nursing student in a TB clinic um, and I was providing direct observed therapy, which is the standard treatment for TB in Canada. Um, and I learned pretty quickly um, about TB. I didn't know that it still existed at that time. So that was very eye-opening for me, but I learned very quickly because we had a large number of people on treatment for active and preventative treatment, latent TB. So, um, and then I, you know, I moved to Northern Saskatchewan where I continue to um, work within TB um, and we have high rates of TB in our indigenous communities up here as well. So. I think it's going to, I think it's good. This conversation will surprise a lot of people that, that to put it, colloquially that tb is still a thing and mm -hmm. i want to talk about that and efforts now and some of the sensitivities around hesitations around care and i think that the the history of this is very relevant here uh doctor when we take a look back at this whistleblower i think it's fair to call him that right uh dr peter bryce uh, he was what at least waving a red flag but also maybe proposing some solutions or at least methods to address this crisis where did actual action fall short was it failure to isolate patients was it a lack of immunization if that existed like can you help us understand what was going on and why it became such an issue with such a devastating fallout yeah so his recommendations you know in my mind uh and i think this will be shown to be true they were based on really sound public health principles you know recommendations to establish isolation tents to quarantine sick children keep them separate from the children who were healthy reduce crowding in dormitories to limit the spread of tb between children improve nutrition to help limit the risk of progression to disease improve ventilation, improve the overall maintenance of the facility, and have a nurse on site to manage the welfare of children. So, you know, some people have said um, in the comments to this article that we've looked back and applied a modern understanding of medicine and thought, you know, because we said that the deaths were not uh, inevitable, that it meant we expected there to have been a cure. And that's simply not the case. You know, 
Dr. Bryce at the time knew that you don't need a modern cure for a disease that you've prevented from spreading. And I think, you know, some people might see some familiarity in, in this. Um, when COVID-19 came to Canada and in the early days of COVID-19 as it spread around the world, um, there wasn't a treatment, there wasn't a vaccine for COVID-19. Um, and when there were no treatments, when there were no vaccines, the recommendations were to limit in-person contact coupled with quarantine and self-isolation of people who were sick or had contact with someone for, who had COVID. And we benefited, I think, today versus in Bryce's time from having governments that supported these recommendations through legislative powers, like making mask mandates and reducing capacity insights of in intensive in-person contact, making recommendations to work from home if possible. So, you know, I don't think that the basic knowledge required to limit the spread of respiratory illnesses has progressed very much. That that knowledge is really fundamental and it, it's basic and it's it's just true. I'm asking you to speculate here, doctor, but, but why do you think that Dr. Bryce's recommendations, uh, his sounding the alarm was was not taken seriously? Was it was it a, was it a uh, sort of a cynicism around his his warning? Was it was it a, a lack of will? I mean, did people simply not care? Were the indigenous lives undervalued? I mean, that almost feels like a rhetorical question, but pardon it. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, we don't have to speculate. The mm. historical record shows that the government at the time just said it's too expensive. Jeez. You know, we don't want to expand the scope of the school's responsibility from the provision of an, an education to the provision of health. And so, you know, if you think about it, it really makes residential schools like the sharp end of the spear in our relations with Indigenous peoples today. Whatever the intended stated or unstated goals of the residential school program, they were considered superior ambitions to protecting the lives and welfare of the children attending. Um, you know, I think TB has a long history. This is a dark chapter in the history of TB and it casts a shadow over our, our relations today. And so we have to, you know, redress that by acknowledging these truths, no matter how painful. No matter how painful, I agree with you. And no matter how uncomfortable uh, for millions of Canadians, this is such an incredibly important conversation. Tina, do you see, uh, I suspect you do, in the course of your, of your work and your commitment to so many communities um, in delivering what we might describe as culturally sensitive care, do you see residual impact from from what we're talking about 100 years ago or 50 years ago to now? And do you see an impact that continues to exist in the community, whether it's hesitance or, or cynicism around public health, whether it's mistrust of government? Do you see it? So the answer is yes. Um, if you think about it, the last residential school closed in 1996. So that wasn't too long ago. Um, I think the general... Um, so in terms of working with survivors, um, in my experience, they've said that they have a big mistrust in any institutions, um, whether it be healthcare, education, 
um, you know, and in, in law enforcement. Um, so somebody is on treatment for TB for anywhere from three months if they're for preventative therapy and then upwards to two years, 24 months. So you're with these people for quite a long time. So you get to know them. And then um, with that relationship, I found that when I was nursing up north, um, that that consistency um, helped build a stronger relationship with these with these individuals. Um, but we see in northern communities and isolated communities that the nursing staff turnover is so high and then they're often understaffed. Um, so programs like TB might not be on the top of the priority list. Um, so I think we need to do better as, you know, um, as a workforce to ensure that these programs are properly supported, especially if there's high numbers in these communities. Um, I've had, you know, people say that they don't want anybody to know that they have TB because it's such a, a, a very, I guess, traumatic experience from before. So they've had family members that have gone to sanatoriums, some that never returned home. Um, they have no idea what happened to them. Um, some people traveled away to sanatoriums, you know, they lost their language. Um, they lost the relationship within their family. Um, and then they returned home and were kind of, you know, like an outcast, but not purposely because they couldn't communicate with their family. So all of that, you know, trickles down through generations, which is, you know, intergenerational trauma. So those attitudes can be passed on, um, you know, towards healthcare. So sometimes I do find it difficult to have people um, engage into TB care. Um, but I mean, it's just, if you're really passionate about it, um, you take the time and you ensure that um, you deliver this care and you, un you have to understand the history of the population that you're serving as well. It's very important to understand the history of residential schools um, and TB sanatoriums when dealing with Indigenous people because um, some, somebody from the outside might think that, oh, they don't, they don't want our help. They don't care about their health um, when really it's just they're hesitant um, and they're still angry perhaps from losing family members. So Absolutely. Um, Tina, we, we, we essentially... We, we kind of touched on this. I mean, in our home city where we broadcast from, also Treaty 6 Territory, as you know, in the city of Edmonton, the Charles Campbell Hospital, the Charles Campbell Indian Hospital was a TB hospital. I mean, it's now currently under renovation, being turned into condos. And we've seen demonstrations and ceremony outside that hospital on an ongoing basis. Uh, matter of fact, I swung by there just this past week and it was moved uh, by, by some of the poetry that's been left there on some of the signage and this is something where i i perceive there to be a desire uh from from the general canadian population an, an earnest desire to learn and understand more about this uh can i ask you a personal question tina do i am, am i understanding correctly that you actually you are a, do i say a survivor of tb you contracted tb is that correct uh, yeah, so during my first year of nursing school, actually right before I got placed to work in the TB clinic, um, I had a skin test done and it came back positive. So I lived over half my life in the north. Um, so it could have happened really at any any point in my life. Um, 
but I'm happy that, you know, it was discovered at the I time. I, I kind of freaked out and I was crying and I had no idea, you know, I was asking, am I going to die? Like I had, I had no idea about TB. Um, and I'm an, I was a nursing student at the time. So I think after that, you know, I, I decided to take preventative therapy and it was nine months. It was done through direct observed um, therapy or DOT is the short form. So it, DOT essentially means a healthcare provider, whether it be a nurse or um, somebody that's trained um, in the program to deliver these medications. So they actually watch you swallow the medication. It can seem like a really, um, what's the word? The process kind of isn't favorable because people will say, well, you don't, you don't trust me to take my own medication, but that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is just to ensure that, you know, treatment is being done safely, that you're monitored because TB medication is very hard on the liver. Um, So we like to make sure that we, we see our clients regularly to make sure that they're not um, suffering any side effects. You have, you just have, you have such a rich understanding though of this. I mean, like a a multifaceted understanding, including being impacted personally. It's, it's quite remarkable, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So it was nine months long. So twice a week I had to go even working there. I couldn't take it myself. So whenever somebody's, you know, kind of, hesitant and doesn't want to do this just because we have to watch them take the medication. I tell them, you know, I've actually had to go through treatment for latent TB as well, um, nine months long. And trust me, I asked the same thing as I said, you know, I'm a nursing student. Why can't I take it? But I said, I stuck through it. I did the whole nine months. Um, and I don't think I would make any other decision than that. Um, especially working within TB, I, I was, at risk of exposure all the time. So, yeah. yeah. Dr. Heffernan, you, you co-authored a piece that recently ran. It was published about 10 days ago in the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper. And, uh, uh it, it was enlightening, and I encourage everybody to read it. You write that the legacies of colonialism and, and tuberculosis are interconnected and continue to manifest to this day. You go on to write that a genuine attempt at reconciliation involves not only recognizing the truth of the suffering deliberately inflicted on indigenous people by settlers, but also honoring indigenous community mourning and calls to action with a comprehensive review and addressing the harms that persist in our relations today. People, as, as mentioned, I believe in earnest, uh, desire meaningful reconciliation. I see a nation right now uh, that is willing to have these conversations. I know this audience is because they tell us every time we have a talk like this. So how does this in your mind, I'm asking you, I guess, to elaborate on your editorial. How does this fit into reconciliation and what does moving forward need to look like? Yeah, um, I just I want to say, first of all, that um, the opinion piece was a, a collaborative effort mm-hmm. by all members of the Stop TV Canada network. Um, and just because there's a convention by the Globe and Mail to, to name authors, uh, my name is there. But uh, sure. we all we all had a part in You're that. You're a team and, player. I, yeah, and tackling TB is uh, going to take a team effort. It is really a, a complex issue. We need people who know about history. We need people who know about treating the disease. We need people who know about anthropology and social studies. Um, but, you know, back to your point, I guess there was this sort of um, kind of misconception that TB disease now and in the past couldn't be 
unfair because it's caused by a bacillus or a bacterium and bacteria don't have intent or viruses don't have intent. They're not necessarily preferential, but the diseases that these pathogens cause, they're a function of your risk of exposure to the organism and of your risk of developing disease or a bad outcome if you are exposed. And those risks are shaped by the way our society is structured. That's true now, it was true in the past. Even before Bryce made his reports and his recommendations in 1901, TB was described as a social disease with a medical aspect by Sir William Osler. So, you know, you have these pathogens, they're mostly neutral kind of actors, but they lead to disease and potentially death when they get paired up with major social inequities. TB has been a reportable disease since 1924 in Canada. And for as long as it's been reported, the rate of disease has been higher in Indigenous Canadians than not. So, you know, if you take a look around at all that we have here in Canada, everything, you gotta ask yourself, you know, why, why do any Canadians suffer a disease of poverty hmm. in a nation that has so much to offer? And so, you know, when it comes to, to reconciliation, I, I watched your show uh, kind of re more recently, you had Chief DeLorme on here from um, Cowessus First Nation. And he said something that just, you know, stuck in my mind. He said, the Indian Act imprisons our minds. And I, I think, you know, that, that applies to all Canadians. I. I've read about, I've heard about the missing children of residential schools. And so these recoveries, we should be treating them as confirmations of truths that have been shared by Indigenous communities you know, for years, for many years. And so I know, and I, I knew I shouldn't be surprised. And it's been shocking uh, nonetheless, you know, the news feels, incompatible with the internalized kind of idealized perception I have of Canada that I know now, you know, it has to be unlearned. We have to create a space that's sort of big enough to admit that decolonizing our minds is a painful journey. It's not a linear journey. We're not going to get it right all the time but it's a lifelong responsibility. And I, I think, you know, that, that's sort of what we were trying to establish there at the end. We have to improve our relations um, and, and acknowledge these truths and these, these harms of the past. I'm so grateful uh, for both of your perspective today. And, and I want to thank you so much for joining us. We, we, we'll continue our learning journey and we, we'll maintain that commitment. And, and, and our understanding is made more rich from the perspectives of people like you, uh, Tina Campbell, a registered nurse with a really a, a remarkable breadth of experience. You can learn more about the efforts at StopTBCanada.com and Dr. Courtney Heffernan as well, a, a TB researcher, manager of the TB Program Evaluation Research Unit at the University of Alberta. Thank you for this. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Great opportunity. How about this on the live chat? Janice says, you know, the loss of family relationships is very real. My mom had no idea. She had an older brother until he returned home up north after almost three years at the Charles Camsell Hospital. He was eight. She was five. 
Arnold says, why why is this so uncomfortable? I hope we can normalize telling the truth until it's not uncomfortable to do so anymore. Nothing is more important to the future of Canada than the well-being of the First Nations. That from Arnold. Let me share this with you, Sam. Do you mind calling up that photo? This, as I mentioned, I was I was just over the weekend. Just I was walking my dog in the area around the former Charles Campbell Indian Hospital, and I, and I came across this monument, which has stood there for quite some time, um, telling, uh, albeit an incomplete version of the story. You might call it whitewashed, or version of the story of what the Campbell Hospital, the former formerly known as the Charles Campbell Indian Hospital, uh, represented, and who was there, and and uh, typically people. Um, indigenous people uh, from the north. Uh, but as you can see on the photo there, there, there's a poem that's that's printed out and it's taped onto the monument uh, with an orange ribbon attached. And I want to read it to you. I, I sat there and I read it and, and I just sat stunned for a moment. And, and pr- pardon my pronunciation, but it's titled Nakupkapit. Uh, where do you pass through? When I came to this place, I had a cough. It was a red cough and it hurt me. My bones cried with pain and my heart kept beating. I didn't understand. How could this be? When I came to this place, I had to lay in a white bed, a white bed, white sheets, white lights. The people were white too. white people in white dresses, white dresses or white shirts. They told me words, but I couldn't understand. And my heart kept beating. I didn't understand. How could this be? I could look out the window and see more white people. White people in black cars, sometimes lots of cars, and then all the cars would disappear and come back again later in the day. In this place, even the nights are white. I couldn't understand, and my heart kept beating. I didn't understand. How could this be? There were other people there who coughed like me. They talked a little bit like me, but they didn't close their words. They brought me white food, mashed potatoes, hot white soup. It tasted like nothing, not even snow. I couldn't understand and my heart kept beating. I didn't understand. How could this be? And one day after many days of white nights and lights, my heart stopped beating and my red cough was still. Now I lay in this place under the ground and I know what's on top of me, but I'm not home. Powerful poem. I don't know who the author is, but it's posted, or at least it was over the weekend, outside that former Charles Campbell Indian Hospital titled, Where Do You Pass Through? You can send us an email anytime. I'm grateful for those of you that join us on this journey that are willing to have these conversations that are willing to to sort through this stuff and discuss not just what happened and this part of our history, but also our future and moving forward and what reconciliation truly needs to look like. And our thanks to both of those remarkable people, those remarkable women for joining us for this conversation. These conversations do not happen without the support of our sponsors, including the team at at Park Power. Park Power, of course, is powering our hashtag, as you know, Real Talk RJ, if you're on Twitter. And for that matter, if you're on Instagram, that's the hashtag we keep an eye on. Park Power is your friendly local utilities provider. Internet, electricity, and natural gas. You can go to their website and compare rates right now. It's easy to take your business over to Park Power. And if you do right now, make sure you use the promo code 2021 
Real Talk, and they'll give you $70 off your first bill. Give them a follow on Instagram as well. The Park Power Instagram account is amazing. I love what it's not all you go, oh, what am I going to follow an internet provider? Is in, you know, their, their Instagram is solid. They feature the community nonprofits that they care about. They talk about things like National Ice Cream Day, which we can all be interested in. Our thanks to our partners at Park Power. The team at Friesen Brothers wants to remind you that you can check out their Instagram. Give them a follow right now at Friesen Bros. They've just released Friesen Brothers branded Alberta made barbecue sauce. And I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go on Instagram right now. I'm going to see if I can do this on my screen. And I want to see if I can find Friesen Bros. Let me call it up here. I want to show you their account. And and, and why don't we go ahead and and why don't we draw a few winners right now? We've been telling you how this goes. I see it's got more than 200 likes. It's got a whole bunch of comments. That's great. Swing on by, like the post, leave a comment. Tell us what you'd most love to throw on the grill from Friesen Brothers and you could win a Friesen Brothers barbecue package. Connie votes for Alberta pork. Says maybe with a maple chipotle marinade and grilled Alberta vegetables. Connie Hansen, you're a winner. We're going to get in touch with you. We're sending you home with a Friesen Brothers barbecue basket. Uh, How about this one here? Let's see. Let's see. Um, Trish Nagel. She says brisket. Brisket and pork ribs. Trish Nagel, you are a winner. We're going to get in touch with you. You can come on down to the South Edmonton store and pick up your barbecue package. And and let me see. I I, I know that some of you are going to say, honestly, Jesperson, you got to find somebody who's talking about veg here. You got to find somebody who's not all about the brisket. What about this? Jem Mary Hannon voting for Tabor Corn. Jem Mary Hannon. You are a winner of a Friesen Brothers barbecue package. We're going to do this again tomorrow. We'll draw two more winners. That makes five for the week. So swing on by the Friesen Brothers Instagram account. Make sure you leave a message there and we'll draw two more winners tomorrow. Of course, it is Thursday. And you know what that means? On Thursday, our good friends at Prairie Catering offer somebody an opportunity to eat your words. Of course, as you know, the Milwaukee Bucks, your 2021 NBA champions. <laughs> oh, Sarah, do you like basketball? It, yeah. <laughs> Were you cheering for the Bucks? I sure was. Honestly, from the first round? Not from the first round. Who were you cheering in the first round? Oh, it, it kind of like ebbed and flowed. So, um, yeah, they they slowly got knocked out. I can't hear ebbed and flowed without commenting on Jordan Everly going to the Seattle Kraken. But I'll keep it all about basketball. I'll keep you, it all about basketball. I you. promise. Hey, the team at Prairie Catering is going to want me to stay focused on this one. So, so how about this? One of the league superstars, James Harden, ran his mouth last year. He ran his mouth about Giannis, the Greek freak. And here's what he said. He said, I wish I could just run at seven feet tall and dunk, but I got to learn how to actually play basketball and have skill. Whoa. Shade. So Giannis goes on to lead his team through all four rounds, including over Harden's club, right? He goes on to win finals MVP. He wins his first title, scoring 50 points. 5-0. Unbelievable. 5-0. 50 points in game six, the final game. And here's what the internet had to say about it. 
on Twitter, NBA memes. Remember when James Harden said Giannis had no skills? Only one of them is an NBA champion and a finals MVP. What about this one? Another tweet from ah, David and a whole bunch of numbers who said Giannis dropping 50 points in the NBA finals while James Harden getting arrested in Paris. I mean, technically, Harden was only detained and questioned by police, not actually formally arrested and certainly not charged, but still only one of them wearing a ring. Let's get to another comment. These are hilarious ones. These on Twitter, we were scrolling through and having a lot of fun with them. How about this one from Cadmiel who says Giannis is higher than James Harden all time already has to be said. Here's another one from Mick Harden. James Harden really acted like a clown to get traded to a super team just to lose to Giannis in the second round. Isn't that poetic justice? How about this one from the Johnny Weekend who says I never want to hear James Harden in the same sentence as Giannis again. Only three players in league history to win MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, and Finals MVP. Giannis and two other guys you may have heard of. Hakeem, The Dream, Olajuwon, and of course the great MJ, Michael Jordan, number 23. Love this one from Stat Muse. Giannis has scored more points in a playoff game than James Harden ever has. Imagine if he had any skill at all. And this one, I love this. Giannis answered all of Kobe Bryant's challenges. Kobe called this. He called a championship back in the day and said, and he went on to win. Sam, can you show it to me? Thanks, buddy. He went on to win everything that's there in the NBA. I wonder what James Harden will say now. And as you can see, he went on to win most improved player. He went on to win the All-Star Game MVP, won the Finals MVP. He won the Larry O'Brien Trophy, and he is now an NBA champion. So on behalf of the entire world, James Harden, courtesy of our friends at Prairie Catering, we invite you to eat your words. A quick reminder that the team at Prairie Catering is offering corporate catering for office meetings in person or virtual. And of course they deliver. You can host your business meetings and conferences at the beautiful Art Gallery of Alberta. Executive boardrooms, that state-of-the-art theater, they can host up to 300 people. And if you mention Eat Your Words on Real Talk, they'll give you 20% off any rental space at the AGA for your next corporate function valid through 2021 our thanks to the team at Prairie Catering. I always just want the music to keep playing. I, I feel like that's the kind of music where like if you're in a good mood, we've described that before. It's like you just got your hair cut and you're wearing the jeans. Strutting music. It's strutting music. Oh, yeah. Walking down the sidewalk, feeling pretty good. I love it. So eat your words. Yeah, <laughs> You see what I mean? We can just keep it going. Like, how are you in a bad mood listening to music like this? You don't even have to like this type of music. It, like, brings something out of you. What are we supposed to do on the show now? We don't want to go. We just want to keep it Captain Positive. Maybe we can just keep it Captain Positive. Uh, but what a show it's been already. And we're so grateful. Hoyles, you've nailed it in, in booking some of these segments. That, that stuff about Afghanistan is continues to blow my mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a story that a lot of Canadians don't realize. We don't realize, uh, I, 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 I'll recognize I'm quoting Mr. Rogers here uh, when he says, you look for the helpers. Mm. But we don't think about the helpers, or at least many of us don't, when it comes to international service, especially in, in conflict zones and these people that literally save lives. And then, wow, the look back at TB, a whistleblower from 100 years ago. I mean, just an amazing story. I think when you when you look at the <laughs> both of those stories are so vastly different. Um, but to think 1904, 1904 was when that doctor was hired and he blew the whistle more than 100 years ago. So yeah. w- what the hell? Yeah. Well, next year, 
So 2022 will actually be the 100 year anniversary. Uh, and here, here's what happens when you have a great producer, they make you look smart. And so I look like I know this, but this is information you provided to me. <laughs> You're but welcome. It, but in 19, hey, you got to reference it. You got, you got to give credit where credit's due, right? I mean, Giannis would credit his teammates too, wouldn't he? James Harden, I'm not oh. sure so much. I don't mean to hate on Harden, but boy, oh boy. He's very hateable. That was, uh, well, it was just, it, 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 it was not a good look. And that did not, as they say, the comment did not age well. But, but to get serious, um, the good doctor here, Dr. Bryce, 1922, was when he published his findings in the book titled The Story of a National Crime being an appeal for justice to the Indians of Canada. And in that book, he wrote again, 99 years ago, this trail of disease and death has gone on almost unchecked by any serious efforts on the part of the Department of Indian Affairs. That is a scathing indictment uh, back in 1922. That's wild stuff, Sam. Yeah, I think, you know, my biggest takeaway to that is there's so many times that that we with our revisionist lens dismiss this as, oh, it was a different time. That's bullshit. There was, there was a smart doctor at this different time that blew the whistle and we all, you know, ignored it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, really appreciate that interview. And of course, you know, you can share our interviews, uh, anytime you can, of course, subscribe to our podcast. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. And then can I show you something online for those of you that watch us, make sure you hit the like button. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's not going to work. It's not going to work because we're live. Remember last time I tried yeah, to do this and yeah, it didn't work because yeah. we were live. Never mind. But what Sarah does in putting together the descriptions on both the podcast and our YouTube shows, our episodes on YouTube is if you look down into the description, you'll see the number. Number, the time code, we call it, you know, whether it's 37 minutes and 10 seconds into the show, you can click on that number. It will jump you right to that interview so you can skip ahead. You don't have to scroll through and try to find it. We want to make it as easy as possible. Now, our experts did bring up COVID-19, and, and, and I think that it kind of parallels nicely with uh, what we wanted to bring up anyway. We wanted to review our question of the week presented by our friends at Y Station each and every week. Uh, they present this and hundreds of you answer. We really appreciate it. Uh, this week, by the way, if you go to our website, RyanJesperson.com, you'll see it there. Uh, this one is a positive one. This one's a fun one. We know it's a tough world out there. We know there's been a lot of difficult subject matter, heavy subject matter. So we're asking you about your past. And of course, this has been inspired by some of our uh, really fun and interesting conversations about, you know, whether or not your dog could be a celebrity or whether or not your your python might have what it takes to get an endorsement deal. We met Gary, the adventure cat and everything else. So we know that pet lovers are going to have a lot of fun with our question of the week this week. But the week before we asked you about COVID-19 and, and how you're feeling, we asked you about you know, as, as, as jurisdictions, whether it's municipalities, provinces and territories, nations, international borders, or maybe just your favorite grocery store, as things start to change, as fewer and fewer people wear masks, as more and more people gather in person, start to host birthday parties again, cocktail parties, campfires outside, or, or maybe even kitchen parties inside. How are you feeling about it? And here's what you told us. I mean, this is per Chris Henderson, their chief strategist. These are some of the high level results of our poll. Ninety four percent of real talkers, basically all of you. I can't say technically, but I can say basically 94 percent of real talkers. Sam, can you put it up again for me? Thanks. Are continuing to apply some level of caution against COVID-19. Only six percent of you are living like it's 2019. 
9% are worried that asking about others' vaccination status would cause problems. 9%. One in 10 of you are worried about that. Okay, 11% of you feel like it's none of your business to ask. So 11% of you feel it's none of your business. I'll call it one in 10. One in 10 of you are worried that it could cause problems. One in 10 of you feel like it's none of your business, which leads me to believe that, that, that the majority of people feel like it's fair game. And you're not worried about what's going to happen if you ask about vaccination status. 73% of respondents, real talkers, are comfortable asking the non-vaccinated to stay away from work or social events. Three out of four polled are comfortable saying if you're not vaccinated, stay away. So are you surprised at that one? Um, I, I, I'm, like, I'm extremely uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable about asking anybody about any medical history, anything, anything. So vaccine is definitely in that realm. So that those numbers are surprising to me because I'm not one of them. Holy smokes, I'm uh, nerve wracked. Yeah, Sam? How you feel about it? You are you comfortable if you're you and Kelly are going to have people over you you you're going to say hang on if if a friend of yours does not have the first shot or maybe the second shot they're not welcome in the kitchen would you be comfortable? You know I think part of it too is just I, like and maybe this is just a an era of oversharing is like I know all my friends have had two shots like anybody that I actually would want to reach out to invite to something like in the back of my head I'm just like oh I remember them seeing them posting their second shot selfie on that day and on that day and let's that say day your too. second so cousin yeah. or your distant aunt is coming over to a family reunion would you would you ask him to steer clear uh, that's a good question um I probably would take a little bit of the side door and and on a mass invitation say we would appreciate people that are, are double vaccinated or wear masks or distance or stay outside if you're not, uh, you know, try and sort of toe that line a little bit. But I mean, you know, let's extrapolate this. We are planning our wedding for next February and there's questions in our head about like, are all of our guests going to be fully vaccinated? Yeah, because the people that will be there are my, you know, 97 year old grandmother who I don't want anywhere near someone 100%, unvaccinated or you could have people that are undergoing chemotherapy or you could have kids that are unvaccinated I mean, there's a whole bunch of scenarios i think that people could justify taking that position right you know almost half of you that that took our question of the week 47 percent want to know that the people they're hanging out with or working with are double vaccinated and past the two-week window it matters to almost half I mean, I want to know. It's it's just it's kind of uncomfortable to be asking somebody about their their health information. So what I've been doing is just not engaging. Like I'm I <laughs> I'm a hermit. Is ultimately like I come to work and then I go home. And last night I had to do a meeting for a volunteer opportunity. And on the way there, I just texted the person and said, "Can we meet outside, please?" Like yeah. we were going to a cafe, and I said, "I I want to be outside." And they were like, "Absolutely, that sounds great." Yeah. Um. So it's it's not that I don't want to know. It's not like I'm putting my head in the sand. It's just it's extremely uncomfortable. And so I'm kind of taking myself out of the equation. Thirty seven percent of real talkers that responded to the survey are comfortable with hugs right now. Thirty percent. And we have a note here from Chris at Y Station. He says this seems low. He said, but my guess is that it's way higher than it was even a month ago. And hugs are going to make a comeback. He says, I can feel it. I'd be curious to see. Chris goes on to say working from home is here to stay. Only 23% of real talkers heading back to the office full time five days a week. 33% of you expecting to have some element of working from home. 14% of respondents did not believe that you will ever 
go back to the office. So look at that. Twenty three percent, just fewer than one in four are planning on going back to the office five days a week, which is pretty interesting stuff. Uh, that That's one that I'm going to keep an eye on. Obviously, we can only prognosticate now. We, we can only guess people can share their own personal experience. But but I'm very interested to see five, six, seven years out what things like commercial real estate, office space, what work from home initiatives look like. So that's some of the high level stuff. Here's what you told us when we asked you to fill in the blanks, not just to click on a vote, but to actually type it out. What do you want to see before you feel comfortable taking off your mask? Many of you told us you want to see mandatory vaccinations. Well, that's not happening. Or places like restaurants, planes, movie theaters, and gyms only allowing vaccinated people. This goes into our conversation yesterday with Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu about vaccine passports. A fascinating conversation. Another one of you said a vaccination for my daughter under 12 until she can be vaccinated. I will continue to exercise caution to protect her as much as possible. Another says, well, cases are currently low. I'm still concerned about the Delta variants. Another says for for big events or flights or all inclusives or cruises, I'd like to see people provide proof of both vaccines, whether that's in a passport or some other form doesn't matter to me. And on the flip side, we asked you, what do you think about others who choose to keep wearing a mask when you said their choice? I couldn't care less. Whatever floats your boat. Another says, totally fine. Don't judge me. I won't judge you. Another said, uh, if you want to wear a mask, then wear a mask. If I go to someone's house or something, they want me to wear a mask, then I will. And Chris says almost every comment in response to this question reflected the above. Because I'll be honest. I mean, here's some real talk. You almost feel like you're cherry picking comments where you make it sound like everybody agrees that it's okay if people keep wearing masks. And then you say, well, in real life, in society, that's not reflective. Because we keep hearing anecdotal stories of people that go, yeah, some guy came up to me in the restaurant and said, are you aware you don't have to wear a mask? Or somebody came up to me in the grocery store, a complete stranger asking why I'm still wearing a mask. So we know it's happening. But Chris says he addresses this. And, and by the way, if you support us on Patreon every month, uh, making a, 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 a monthly donation to, to join us on our journey, and allow us to keep building the show. We're so grateful to our Patreon supporters. You have this full top line report in your email inbox right now. And our thanks to you. It's our way of saying thank you. Chris says almost every comment in response to this question reflected the above. That's why it sounds like it's only one way. He says the below response in bold was the only response of its kind out of 85 total comments. Overall, there was a surprising level of empathy. The one comment, perpetual maskers are the new anti-maskers. Perpetual maskers are the new anti-maskers. Disagree. If if you're looking for a way to make that make sense, I don't think it's going to make sense. But I suspect... Here's the funny thing is like... It's none of your business, right? It's none of your business. Why do you care if somebody still wears a mask? Why is it your, why is it in your wheelhouse to comment on that? I don't quite understand that. That's what I don't quite understand. We asked you for anything else, which is oftentimes what I love to do or how I love to wrap an interview where you say to someone, what did we miss? Or what would you like to talk about? Or is there anything else you'd like to add? One of you said, I I get that people want to move on from the pandemic. I want to as well. I'm going to move more slowly than some people and probably more quickly than others. During this time of low transmission, let's give each other space to get comfortable getting back to. And everybody that uses normal has it in quotes. Almost everybody that uses the word puts it in quotes. As it should be. 
and have some empathy if things go in the wrong direction again in a few months. Another says the hardest part of the entire pandemic has been the polarization of views regarding public health measures. This has caused greatly uh, increased and, in my opinion, unnecessary anxiety for many people. Another says, I'm so frustrated that max masking and, and vaccines are touchy subjects. This is not a privacy issue. It's a public health issue. Others say people need to be aware that not everybody's able to get the vaccination. I think we need to be careful about blanket decisions to ostracize the unvaccinated. That's what Ubaka talked about yesterday. Another says COVID was pretty horrible, but it showed me that I've picked the right partner to share my life with and to be the father of my children. And I'm so lucky for the life I have. That is beautiful. I kind of feel like we should end the show on that. That's <laughs> and a, that's done. A, that's a great sentiment, you know? Another says, I used to wipe down my seat, my tray, my seatbelt before every flight. I'd bring these like antibacterial wipes and I'd get funny looks from my partner and my seatmates. They go on to say, not so funny now, is it? I'll definitely continue to do so when I get the chance to fly again. We're not we're not pulling the hand sanitizer out of the studio. Nope. Why would we? I mean, I think that people are going to be taking public health measures. You know, people are going to be continuing on with things that have proven to have benefit. You know, some of the cynics that would say, uh, you know, we didn't see a lot of the flu over the last year. Why do you think? Why do you think? It's because everybody was wearing masks. Everybody was using hand sanitizer. We encourage you to check out our question of the week uh, this week. As mentioned, a little more fun, a little more lighthearted. Sometimes we go heavy. Sometimes we go light. We always want to make you smile. We always want to provide value and insight into where real talkers are at. Your fellow Canadians. That's what it's all about. You can answer the question. Of course, at the very top of the page at ryanjesperson.com. Let me remind you quickly that our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are ready for you right now with another deal exclusive to Real Talkers. If you mention my name, Jespo, or you mention the show, the Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Y Gardens, Baseline Road, Westmount, and Newcastle. I like to switch up the order just to challenge myself every once in a while. They're going to give you two cheeseburgers for five bucks or two doubles for seven. It's part of the continued perks. Thanks to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. We're coming up to the end of July, which means in August, there'll be another deal from those Dairy Queens. And we're grateful for that to say the very least. The team at Westworld Computers powers this studio every day. We want to remind you that their team of service techs has seen it all over the last 40 years. And you can book your appointment today at westworld.ca. If you'd like to shop online, they'll ship anywhere across Canada. Happily taking your order. Those brand new iMacs are out. And I know everybody's excited about them. You'll find them at the independently family-owned Westworld Computers. The team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge... Well, they can prove it right now. They have the best selection in Alberta when it comes to Ram trucks. If you've got that new trailer or maybe you inherited one of those super old heavy trailers that there's no way you should be towing it with your SUV, you know you need a Ram pulling that trailer. Why not go for that Ram, the 2500, the 3500 one ton? They're tough to find right now, but the shared inventory at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge could be your answer. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you'll find our friends at Eden Landscaping. Matter of fact, I'm talking to Mike on the phone a little later on today. I'm I'm looking forward to connecting with him. It's, It's taken us a while because Mike is 
is quarterbacking a whole bunch of teams that right now are turning dreams into reality. They're a one-stop shop. So in past, you've heard of people that hire the landscape architect and then they go hire the landscaper to build it. You've got a general contractor in the mix. Who's getting paid here? The answer is everybody. Eden Landscaping is able to turn your dream into reality and keep the cost on budget every time because they've been providing that full service since inception more than 20 years. You'll find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to be checking in with our friends from the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. We're going to be talking about building healthy communities. What does it mean? What goes into it? We'll be looking for audience interaction on that one. Plus, we're going to take a closer look at water issues when it comes to First Nations communities, in particular in British Columbia. My pal, energy writer Markham Hislop, will join us. And of course, trash talk. Make it a great Thursday. We're gonna win.